Hello and welcome to Downstream, Navarra Media's interview series about politics, culture, political culture and why Batman sucks. But there'll be more on that in just a minute. Today's episode is part of our disability focus. So if you'd like this and you want to learn more about the issues facing disabled people in politics, culture and society, head over to navaramedia.com. You'll find articles, podcasts, maybe even a few more videos and you can indulge to your heart's content. I am very, very pleased to be here with Amanda Leduc, an author and disability rights advocate based in Canada. She's a novelist as well as a writer of nonfiction. And today we'll primarily be talking about her 2020 book, Disfigured. Oh my God, is this upside down? No, it's right way up on fairy tales, disability and making space. And it's a really incisive, really incredible read. So Amanda, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Ash. It's a real pleasure to be here. So I just thought maybe I'd talk a little bit about where this show came from for me, because it started with one of my, uh, with one of my favorite topics of conversation, which is Batman slander, because I can't stand Batman. I hate Batman. It's the worst superhero. Um, Number one, he's a billionaire who could fix all of Gotham's social problems, but instead chooses to deal with his own personal issues by beating up street level criminals. Um, Also, every time he gets his suit redesigned by Lucius Fox, he has to ask for the stupid little ears to go on top of the mask. So I just sort of think like, who is this man like held captive by his own vanity? Um, But it was really when I was thinking about the Christopher Nolan films, I realized that disability and disfigurement feature prominently as markers of villainy, of otherness, of deviance. So you've got the Joker, famously played by Heath Ledger, and his facial scars. You've got the virtuous prosecutor Harvey Dent becoming the unhinged revenger Two-Face after half of his face burns off, or even, you know, the human, like, bulldozer Bane, whose mask pumps him full of painkilling gas because of his previous injuries. And then once you start seeing it, you can't unsee it. You you see it everywhere. Mm -hmm. So disabled bodies are everywhere in our popular culture, in our cinema, in our literature, in our mythology. But we so rarely see them as disabled people. So as in Batman, they can be marks of villainy or otherness or deviance, or there's a lot of meaning, but as symbolic content. So you've got the blind prophet Tiresias of Thebes, or disability is a state from which one is transformed or transformed into. So the tongueless Philomel gets turned into a nightingale in Ovid, the malevolent queen in Snow White disguises herself as a hunchback. Like I said, once you start seeing it, you see it everywhere. So I wanted to learn more about it, about these cultural representations, and that's when I picked up a copy of Amanda's book, Disfigured, and it totally knocked my socks off because I thought it was just going to be about representations of disability in culture. And then this book was about so much more than that. So Amanda, let's uh, throw it to you. How did this book begin and why fairy tales? So fairy tales in in a way, because I've always been interested in fairy tales. I um, grew up and what, what I consider, although I, I mean, this is an age bias, obviously, to be the golden age of Disney films. So like Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Lion King, like all of those, like the classic films, you know, the sort of late. Aladdin was as hot as a man without nipples could be for me. I just want to say <laughs> that was like my real sexual awakening was Aladdin. Right? right yeah, yeah. That was my type. Before he was the prince, because then I was like, I liked the street Aladdin. I know. You know? I know, the street urchin, you know, his, his, um, 
his physique was shown off a little bit better as oh, yeah. of the street urchin, you know, hardly problematic oh, yeah. at all. <laughs> um, so I, I had always been interested in fairy tales and Disney interpretations of them. And I had actually started working on a, a novel um, and it was about uh, disability in some ways, but about mythology and fairy tales and the way that we tell stories as a way of trying to survive. And I was trying to figure out, I was having a lot of trouble with it. And I went away on retreat in 2018 to um, an American writing retreat called Hedgebrook. And it was this lovely series of little cabins in the wood. And you could go on walks and think about your work. And it was really idyllic. And I have a limp, so I have cerebral palsy and I walk with a... Um, a prominent limp in my day to day. And there were walking sticks outside of the cottage that we all stayed in. And so I took a walking stick and I was going through the forest at one point trying to just think about my novel. And I was thinking about how the using the walking stick actually made moving through the forest a lot easier for me. I don't use a cane in my day to day, but I, you know, have thought that it might be something that I start using, um, in, if not the immediate future, then, then sometime soon. And I was thinking about how forests as we know them as physical spaces are very inaccessible to disabled people. But then forests as the kind of magical uh, fairy tale arena that we think of are actually very inclusive to disabled people because disabled people are in so many of the fairy tales that we know. And it just sort of hit me all of a sudden, like, oh my gosh, you know, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, um, the, the old hag in, in Snow White, um, and, you know, Sleeping Beauty, sleeping for a hundred years and, and, you know, how that these kinds of cultural awarenesses of, of disability find their way into the stories that we tell. But there's a wider sort of political awareness of disability that's missed in the storytelling because you never see a disabled character in a fairy tale or in a Disney film. You never see them as disabled people. Like you never see the actual lived reality of their lives. Disability is just something that's usually visited on someone as a punishment. So um, thinking back to Disney, one of the examples of this, and obviously it's a story that moves beyond Disney. It's been around for a long time, is the story of Beauty and the Beast, right? Where the beast is, you know, he, he is initially a handsome prince and his behavior is bad. So he is cursed to be made ugly, essentially, um, because his outer countenance has to match the ugliness of the person that's inside. And these are really, really excuse me, really, really subtle messages um, that if you're not, you know, disabled, um, you don't necessarily pick up on these things. But for people who are disabled and who have spent their whole entire lives being told that they were different or being made to be outcasts, or it, particularly in the case of people with facial differences, um, you spend your whole life being treated like you're different. And then you just see that reinforced by the popular culture that's around you. Um, one of the things that's often talked about with facial differences in particular is, you know, James Bond films. There are so many James Bond films out there that have villains who have some measure of facial scarring. And I believe the tradition continued with the most recent James Bond film that came out. Um, the, the actor Rami Malek, his character has a facial difference. And so also he, like for no reason to the plot, by the way. So like yeah. his facial difference is just sort of like, you've just got to know that he's a wrong. And it's no like, 
Yeah. It's not really important in there. And so I, I was thinking about all of this and then thinking about my own journey and life as a disabled woman. And I thought, okay, well, maybe, maybe there's an essay here that I can write because it just, it seems so obvious to me all of a sudden that I just sort of thought, okay, well, obviously this has been written about by people who are much smarter than I am and, and you know, who've been on this for a while. And there wasn't actually a lot. So I left the retreat and I was thinking about the essay and then I did some research and, you know, the more I looked, the less I found. And so I decided, okay, well, maybe the essay will be a few essays, or maybe it'll be a collection of essays, or maybe it'll be, it ended up being a book. And that's where it all kind of came together. And then I had initially thought about it just being not just, but I wanted the focus to be on pop culture specifically. But as I was writing it, a lot of my own story came through as well. So it ended up being a kind of hybrid pop culture analysis mixed with memoir, which ended up being really powerful for me as a disabled person, I think, because there was very much a lot in the book about reclaiming the narrative that I had, you know, been told about my body as a disabled person when I was younger, and then also the narrative that I was internalizing for myself as well. Um, and so now the book's been out for almost two years, and it's really, it's been a a pivotal two years, I think, um, for, for me as a writer, but I think also just for disability awareness in general and pop culture, there are a lot more, you know, you, you see responses to it. Um, uh, I guess maybe a year or so ago, I can't remember the exact timeline, but there was the Anne Hathaway film that came out, The Witches, and there was um, some blowback for that as well with the depiction of some of the witches as having um, certain differences in terms of how their hands were formed and that sort of thing. And then, of course, there's the James Bond stuff that keeps coming up. Um, and it's it's interesting and really heartening, I think, to see this kind of wider awareness being played out on social media and in the kind of conversations that we're having. But we still got a long way to go. I mean, we're still making movies, right, with with these characters um, and really not thinking about disability in, in ways that we should be. Like, disability is not a plot device. It's not something that should just be used to move a story along. And that's how it's often been treated in the fairy tales that we have known and loved for generations. And I just think it's time for us to think about telling new stories uh, and to think about, you know, um, taking in new stories as well and imagining different futures for ourselves. I mean, I really want to get into uh, this combination of memoir and literary criticism that you, you pull off within the book. But before we get there, I suppose... For me, one of the things about fairy tales, the better word for them is uh, Martian, I think, which is wonder tales, which is you exist in a world where where magic is a realistic possibility and it's going to come up. Um, what what are the patterns in these wonder tales in terms of the representation of disability? What are the patterns that you identified? Mm. Well, there's two really main patterns. Um, the, the first and foremost one being disability as a marker, as we've talked about, of villainry, right? So someone who is evil um, is depicted in a fairy tale as looking a very particular way. So, and, and even as I say this, you know, I, I am aware that we are, looking at different ways of storytelling now. So I, I think about, you know, the story of Rumpelstiltskin, 
he is depicted as being a quote unquote ugly hunchbacked dwarf. And, you know, there are, are political retellings now that tell the story from the perspective of Rumpelstiltskin, right? Who is having to like cater to this spoiled woman and the spoiled king. But in the original version of the tale, you have this, this villain, right? Who is this sort of inciting force against the innocent, good looking, beautiful princess and the king and that sort of thing. Um, and then you also have someone like we talked about with the beast and beauty and the beast where disability is a punishment that's visited on him um, and he needs to learn how to behave in order for the disability to be taken away which another tale that sort of follows that um, that framework is an older tale called the maiden without hands by the brothers Grimm um, and that was collected in the uh, Grimm's fairy and folk tales and it's about a woman who has her hands cut off by the devil um, and she sort of goes out into the world and sort of subsists on the charity of others and meets a king and falls in love and and um, you know they have a child and then she is banished by the king's mother-in-law and she she walks through the forest you know for seven years and meets angels and and sort of is taken care of and then by virtue of her faith has her hands grow back at the end of the tale and we can look at this one of the things that you know we often understand when we're reading a fairy tale is that we know it's fictional from beginning to end you have you know that's that's in contrast to things like myths or legends which are often understood to be based in some element of fact you know it, it might have been embellished over the the generations since the the true tale happened but fairy tales by contrast are sort of we understand that you know again it's a magical world like you said where anything can happen at all but within that you know, fairy tales set up this very clear idea of who triumphs in society and who does not, right? There's this very real sort of idea of the arc of the fairy tale being that the, the protagonist starts out and they experience trials and tribulations and challenges, but then they triumph in the end and they get a happy ending. And the happy ending usually involves some sort of beauty or some sort of eradication of disability or eradication of ugliness. Um, if people are ugly at the end of a story, whether physically or internally, you know, they're, they're punished for it in a certain way. Um, you look at something like this, the fairy tale of Cinderella, right? In one of the German um, versions of the story, the stepsisters have their eyes pecked out by birds at the end of the tale as punishment for how they treated Cinderella. So, oh, they didn't put that in the Disney film. No, no, no. <laughs> Surprisingly enough, it didn't end up in the Disney film, right? And and again, you've got that trope, right, where someone is behaving badly, so they have disability, in this case blindness, um, visited upon them as a, a reward or a punishment, rather, for their, for, um bad behavior. And we can look at that and say, oh, well, those are just fairy tales. Those are just stories that we tell the kids. But the point is that they are stories that we tell to children. And this sets up a very clear expectation on the part of kids for who is good and who is bad in the world, right? Um, if you tell... I, mean, I, I really want to get um, sort of follow this point on because there is this wonderful interweaving of your own childhood experiences, your interaction with medical institutions regarding your own disability, and then also how fairy tales work. And there was this one sentence, let me see if I can remember it properly. Um, it was, my brain has been opened up and the offending particles removed, a process which is entirely scientific and also magical. Mm. And I just thought that that was 
you know, where the memoir and the literary criticism overlap in your writing for me was like really um, spectacular in some ways, but also like very, very moving. And so I kind of want to ask you about the specific role of transformation, magical transformation in wonder tales and fairy tales and in myth and the specific ways in which that relates to disability. And then how did that make you feel as a child? The idea that there are magical interventions which sort the right and the good into the right and the good bodies and the bad and the wicked into the bad and the wicked bodies. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's, that's a, a loaded question. Um, I mean, for me, as a young child, I had a cyst in the center of my brain. So when I was four, almost five, I had surgery to take it out. And the cyst um, at the time had been, you know, I, I was limping more so even than I do now. And my foot was turned inward. And the idea was that the cyst would be removed and it would help to straighten my foot. And so I could walk with less pain and, and walk, you know, quote unquote, normally, whatever that means. And, you know, to someone writing 500 years ago, writing a fairy tale, like that would have been inconceivable, right? This idea that you could, that, you know, you get to the the advancement of surgery and medicine and all these things and get to this point where you can actually open people's bodies up and take things out is just magical. So on some level, it was magical, right? Because, because it meant that my body changed in response to something that was visited upon it. But the idea, you know, the more insidious idea behind that is that, yes, of course, you want someone to walk without pain. Um, and that was certainly a, a guiding force for me in my own surgeries. But then also there's this, this other sort of more insidious idea that, you know, we want, we want bodies to look a certain way. We want people to walk a certain way and to be a certain way so that they're not ostracized and they're not made fun of, right? And that is something that I, I think people often don't, stop to question when they we think about the idea of disability and cures and that sort of thing. Like everyone just sort of automatically thinks, oh, well, obviously you'd want to be cured of, you know, um, syndrome X or, or, you know, this, this disability or that disability. You'd want to be cured because otherwise, you know, life can be quite terrible. Life can be quite hard. And what people don't understand or don't really stop to realize and think about is that disability can be hard because of the way that the world is built to exclude disability, to make it difficult to live in a disabled body, right? Um, So I think, and this is something that, you know, back when fairy tales were being written initially in the 17th and 18th centuries, um, people weren't thinking on that level of the way that we build society and how disability is in many ways a function of the way that society is built to keep certain people out, right? Um, you weren't necessarily thinking in the time of Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm of, you know, building ramps into buildings. The sort of default was always building stairs. Although I say that, and yet there was a, you know, a news article several months ago that came out about excavations of a temple in Greece And it was a temple that was built for healing. And there were ramps that were built into the temple because the understanding was you would be bringing people who, you know, um, maybe couldn't walk or or were otherwise um, otherwise had difficulties. And so there is this wider awareness in history um, about disability and about the way that bodies can be different. And I think just the the focus and the the. 
the limelight, if you will, especially over the last kind of two centuries, has been on bodies that move a very particular way to the exclusion of other bodies. Um, because it becomes easier for society to function when you only have to consider and think about one particular kind of body and you just don't spend any energy thinking about bodies that may look different or may move otherwise. So that's why I think in many ways you have fairy tales where the happy ending includes, you know, um, a magical intervention or a magical transformation where someone is made to look normal. In the fairy tale Hans my Hedgehog, you have a, a boy who is born to parents and he's half hedgehog and half human. And by the end of the tale, spoiler alert, um, he makes it so that he's able to remain being a beautiful young boy, beautiful young man for the rest of his life. He gets rid of his hedgehog costume. And even though, again, we look at tales like that and we say, well, those are just fairy tales. That's not the real world. That's not how the real world works. Unconsciously, I think that's the, that's the world that everybody's looking towards and striving towards, right? And we can see this not only in disability, but in other aspects of marginalization as well, right? There's a real push for people to move a certain way and look a certain way. If you think about one of the things that I think about a lot, especially in the course of the pandemic, is this idea of wellness, right? And how there's this mm. increased focus on wellness as a result of the pandemic. But nine times out of 10, your essay or, you know, article about wellness that's going to appear online is going to have probably um, a woman, in many cases, a white woman who is thin, wearing a nice pair of yoga pants, you know, sitting. I always think of like a white woman running down the beach and I go, Lady, what are you running from? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> right? Like, it's very, it's very, well, I mean, very subtle in some ways and not subtle to other people who look at it and see just how they don't fit into that, right? Um, and, and I just think it's something that we really, really need to question, um, especially now. I think the pandemic has really given us an opportunity to rethink how we build and structure the world that we live in. One of the things that you talk about within the book is the way in which storytelling interacts with and shapes our everyday lives and vice versa in ways which are both societal and, and individual. And we've, we've talked about how those very almost like moralizing acts of transformation, the transformation tells you whether you're good or bad, whether the body is good or bad, how that impacted you as a child, but it also had societal impact. So there's this one moment where you talk about how changeling myths mm -hmm. actually impact the lives of disabled children so could you could you share with with our audience a bit about that because I never heard about this before yeah so um for anyone who maybe doesn't know the myth of the changeling is is uh, particularly pervasive was particularly pervasive in Irish um, and Scottish folk culture, where the idea was that um, if you had a child who was born and who was maybe sickly or, you know, underweight or, or other things like that, um, the idea was that this was a child um, of the fairies and that the actual human child had been swapped out by the fairies. So families would often, you know, leave their children out in the snow or they'd leave them out exposed and the children would die. But the idea was that the, they would, were leaving the fairy child out for the, the real child, the human child to be returned to them. And the changeling myth also encompassed things like, for example, um, it was, a, it could be said that, you know, a child who in many cases, uh, 
traits that we would associate uh, with autism and autistic people now. Um, traits like counting coins and stuff. Fairies were said to be really fascinated with these sort of repetitive motions. So if you had a child who, you know, was counting coins in a corner or like very particular about keeping things neat a certain way, um, you know, we would look at that now and say, okay, well, you know, maybe there is, maybe this child is on the spectrum. Maybe there's OCD. Maybe there are other things involved that we can put a name to and, you know, place it in the world. And in the 17th and 18th centuries, the way that they placed that in the world was to place it within the wider culture of fairies and what the mythologies that, that wrapped around that. Um, and there was a particular case of a woman um, who, uh, her name was Bridget Cleary, and she was actually killed by her husband when she was in her late 20s. She'd been ill, and she wasn't really herself, probably because she'd been ill. And her husband became convinced that she had, you know, she'd been taken over by fairies or she'd been swapped by the fairies. And he was waiting for her, her um, fairy doppelgangers, as such as it was, to disappear so that his wife could come back. And the other thing that happens with that, too, is you look at postpartum depression and you look at women who, you know, struggled um, or pregnant people who struggled with uh, bonding with their children after they were born, possibly because of postpartum depression. Um, you know, they could look at that sort of difficulty of bonding with their child and interpret it in light of, well, maybe I have a changing child. Like maybe this child isn't actually mine. Maybe that's the issue that's happening here. So it's so much right about the understanding that you have of the wider world and that mixture of both scientific and cultural understanding, which, I mean, I think, you know, we look back on the 16th and 17th centuries and we say, oh, my goodness, you know, they, they didn't know so many things. That's going to be the same for us, um, particularly when it comes to disability. I think in 200, 300 years, people are going to look back and say, oh, you know, look at how they treated, you know, cerebral palsy in my case. Like they, they opened up my skull and took, you know, my cyst out. And, and maybe they'll look back on it 200 years from now and say, well, isn't that barbaric? Like there were so many other things that could have been done. And I, I think the interesting thing about stories and storytelling is that there's all, they're always shifting, right? Fairy tales are always shifting and changing with the culture and with the times. And to think about them as these kind of immutable stories that, that don't change or don't shift in any way is really, um, I think, doing a disservice to what these kinds of stories can do and the way that they can really help us look at the world differently. And so I, I hope... You know, I'm, my hope is that the book um, contributes to that conversation and, and really gets people thinking about every single time they go to see a Marvel movie or a Disney movie or a James Bond movie and you see a villain who looks differently. Think about why we tell stories that way. You know, what is it about having a villain who looks differently? What does that contribute to storytelling? Is it because it's a lazy way of storytelling? You know, and, and if that's the case, then how do we tell stories differently? to make shape for and, and create a different world to move in. But like, I mean, I'm sorry to bring it back to Batman, but I do really yeah, fucking absolutely. hate Batman. Like, you know, the, the worst superhero. But like, why is it that particularly if you don't have a disability, 
that as audiences, we don't see that this billionaire beating the living daylights out of disabled villains, you know, whether that's Bane, who clearly has some kind of chronic pain issue, uh, you know, the Joker with his facial scarring, um, or Harvey Dent, where Harvey Dent's transformation is he has one half of his face burned and no one goes, by the way, you could still be a prosecutor. He's like, guess it's supervillain time for me. Why is it? <laughs> you know, it how many like law degrees does he have? And he's like, no, no, afraid I can't. Time for uh, nothing but um, murder and uh, mayhem. Sorry. No, no. Um, but, but, but why? What is... St- okay, let me try and rephrase that question. <laughs> At once... Disability is hyper-visible and invisible. Mm-hmm. So there is this hyper-visibility of the difference and that's telling you something about these characters. And yet we do not think about the lived reality of what it might be like to be Harvey Dent or be like Bane with the chronic pain condition. What is accounting for that cognitive distance between what we're seeing and not seeing? Well, it's easier, right? I mean, it's easier to treat Harvey Dent as a villain. It's easier to treat Bane as a villain than it is to go up to Bruce Wayne and say, look, dude, you have billions of dollars. We're going to, you know, tax you at 90% or however high it needs to be and redistribute your wealth, right? Like we are, we live in a world that is built in such a way to, to really cater to the billionaires to, you know, get super political about it, um, but to cater to the people in power, right? So it's easier to keep those who have relatively less or even no power at all, it's easier to keep them powerless than it is to look at what it might mean to make a world more egalitarian. Um, because then that that also means that we bear a collective responsibility for issuing in this kind of change, right? I mean, you can be the nicest person in the world. And when someone says to you, oh, well, you know, um, what about disabled people? What about access? Like, are you fighting for getting ramps installed in your city hall or in your city buildings? Are you fighting for accessible equipment at your playground? And someone says, oh, well, you know, no, I, I'm, I'm not, but I'm still a good person. It's not enough, right? Like we we have become very complacent in society um, because it's it's just easier to to be that way, right? It's it's easier to do that than to recognize that there are level upon level upon level of injustice that are that is happening um, to disabled people and then also to people of other marginalizations, right? And so I, I think I think. It really requires, I mean, the work of accessibility um, requires a real humility where all that's concerned and a recognition that we're all making mistakes and that we're all, we all bear responsibility for, for moving toward this different world together. And for most people, it's just easier to say, well, you know, disabled people are only a fraction of the population. So like, rather than, you know, cater to them, um, let's just deal with the rest of the population that's non-disabled. We already have structures in place for this. It's a lot easier. But the issue with accessibility, of course, is that once you make something accessible for disabled people, everybody else can still use it. You know, you look at things like curb cuts or... Um, Ramps, for example. Um, yes, there are innovations that are built primarily for disabled people, but they are also innovations that everybody else can use. 
someone who's pushing a stroller can use a ramp. Someone who is pushing a trolley full of, you know, supplies can use a ramp. And people don't think about that when they think about, oh, so much work needs to be done to make things accessible. It's just easier not to do it. It's just easier to look away from the problem. Well, we live in a world, we live in a pandemic and, you know, disabled people have been arguing for decades, like work from home options would be really, really good for us. Why can't we have this? And the response has always been, no, it's too difficult. We can't implement it. We can't, you know, keep track of people and make sure that they're working their, you know, 40 hours a week or whatever it is, heaven forbid that they're not. And then suddenly a pandemic comes and suddenly it's not just a quote unquote fraction of the population that needs to deal with this, but everybody. And inside of a week, you had like the, so many countries across the world shifting to a work from home format. Right? I mean, inside a week, everyone discovered that they had Zoom all this time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Like it just, it, again, it's it's a willful ignoring of the issues that are at play, right? It's not the people, um, it's not that people can't implement access or can't think about disability in these ways. It's not that we can't expand our stories to consider different things. Um, it's that people don't want to. It's that they're more comfortable with the, the story where, you know, Harvey Dent has something happened to him and be, it becomes a villain as a result of it because it's easier for us to imagine this world. It's easier for us to look at that and say, you were treated terribly, so you, you know, became a terrible person as a result. Why can't I mean, it literally that? puts him outside of society. And so I suppose just for the benefit of our audience, what we're discussing here is the difference between the medical model of disability and the social model of disability. So the medical model of disability, and correct me if I'm wrong here, it locates the disability in the body of the person. So it's like, this is your affliction. This is what's holding you back from participating fully in society. Um, sucks to be you. Maybe one day we'll find a cure. <laughs> um and then there's the social model, which says it is the organization of society, mm -hmm. the prohibition of access, uh, where uh, funding is allocated, which disables the person. Um, have, have I got that yes. distinction right? Yes. So then there is this ideological function of here is Harvey Dent, who goes from being, you know, the prosecutor, like at the heart of upholding, he was included and excluded from society. He becomes disabled in some way. And so suddenly he's outside of it. But that's fine because he's trying to kill Christian Bale. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, the social model and the medical model, you know, they, they are two models and there are others, right? There, There is a, a school of thought called complex embodiment, which holds also that the disability can be both of these things, right? It, it's both... Uh, built as a result of the way that society keeps disabled people out and doesn't build accessible solutions to things. But then also, you know, disability is also marked by things like chronic pain mm. um, and difficulties with fatigue and stuff like that, which aren't necessarily going to be either, you know, solved by social issues or solved, quote unquote, by medical issues, right? Um, I mean, it's, Disability is, is human, right? Like it, it's having a body in the world um, entails at some point, especially if you live long enough, you know, if disability doesn't visit you while you are young and you live a long life, chances are you will be disabled by some point at the end of your existence, you know, whether it's glasses that you have to wear or a cane that you have to use or a wheelchair or things like that. It's something that happens to everybody and by not looking at it, by not treating it as the urgent issue that it is, we're really doing all of ourselves a disservice, right? Because this wonderful, beautiful 
world that, you know, exists over and above the social and medical models where we can all participate in society in some way that holds benefit for all of us. Um, and it, it's just, it's really short-sighted in some ways, I think, to, to think again, that disability is only, you know, an issue specific to disabled people. It's actually something that improves the world for all of us. I mean, I, I want to sort of bring this back to the fairy tales a bit because I'd never heard of complex embodiment before I read this book. And I realized that there was this, you know, um, don't, don't want to sound like a Blairite, but a third way of understanding um, uh, all this stuff. And it, it made me wonder, well, are there fairy tales which are, you know, describing this sort of complex embodiment and doing something different from, say, the Brothers Grimm? And the one that came to my mind was The Little Mermaid, the Hans Christian Andersen version, because there is so much attention paid to her experience of physical pain. So she comes out of the sea, uh, she's got legs now instead of like, oh my God, fin? Fin? Tail, <laughs> tail. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, I, like I did English literature, not zoology, okay? I don't know what this is called, but I know what it symbolizes. <laughs> So she comes out of the sea, she's got her legs. And um, Hans Christian Andersen spends so much time describing how the pain of walking on feet is like walking on knives for her. She's in agony. And there are lots of um, ideas that perhaps he was talking about his own sense of pain and woundedness of being a uh, queer man in a heteronormative world, the inability to have your love recognized and reciprocated and and that agony being there but maybe would you say that actually what's going on here is some kind of nascent awareness of this complex embodiment of you know being in the body of feeling the pain and also understanding about how society is is foisting that upon mm -hmm. you I mean, it, absolutely. I think it definitely can be read in that way. I think one of the things that's really interesting for me about the Hans Christian Andersen version of The Little Mermaid is that it's a very sad, it's a very sad story in many ways, but there are definitely still moments of, of happiness in there. Like her longing to become human and her sacrifice, if you will, even though, you know, I have, I have issues with that just in general. Um, like she, she is reaching towards something, right? She is reaching towards some kind of life that she wants to have. And I, I think we tend to do this, especially Disney, right? Um, there's, there's a, a certain kind of simplification of the narratives that we tell, right? Where they either end really happily and everything is tied off in a neat little bow, or they end terribly, um, you know, like for the, the um, stepsisters in Cinderella or in some of the other uh, grim tales, um, they can, they can end quite unhappily in many ways, but the reality of life is, and you know, all lives contain both of those things at the same time, right? Like we all have happy moments in our lives and we all have less than happy moments in our lives. And the issue with disability is that people tend to look, especially non-disabled people, look at disabled people from a non-disabled lens and they think look at all the things that I can do that this person who uses mm. a wheelchair cannot do like their life must be so sad well you know I do not use a wheelchair but I am not looking at an Olympic athlete and saying wow that person can run a marathon and I can't run a marathon like my life is just so sad by comparison 
I mean, that's, that's a bit of an extreme example, but the idea is that, you know, to, to look at someone's life and to assign a value on it purely on the basis of what you think that life is capable of, especially when you're not the person living that life is really problematic. And it, it's really mm. something that we need to, and this, you know, goes back to that, that whole question about Harvey Dent and Batman and that whole idea, right? Like the prevailing narrative in there of Harvey Dent turning into a bad guy because he's had this terrible thing happen to him is there because on some level we lack the creative imagination to say, you know what, you can have terrible things happen to you as a person and still reach for all that is good and wonderful and joyous and still have those joyful things in your life. It is entirely possible to be a disabled person who has a life filled with joy and people who can't see that are just not doing the imaginative work, both of imagining that particular life, but then also imagining a world where all of these things are possible at the same time. I mean, I wonder about this a lot, about the demands, liberation movements, whether that is through the lens of anti-racism or feminism, what demands we make of culture, Mm -hmm. right? Because there's, on the one hand, my analysis of going society is shaped through narratives and stories and this is how power structures are encoded and internalized and there's the other which is i think i have a certain squeamishness of going i don't want to make too many demands because then then you kill the art and so i I wonder if sort of trying to address this is there a problem that in culture disability has to have symbolic content Mm -hmm. right it has to mean something so either the disability represents something you know like a sort of abstract affliction of the gods visited upon somebody or the transformation is the thing that has meaning or i think particularly in contemporary life disability can convey the virtuousness of the character right by virtue of the disability that they have it's like ah the inspiration porn is here so is (laughs) is is the thing that we've got to try and challenge art to do isn't make it fit ah this is the the correct ideological model but to sever that connection between disability and symbolic content or or do you think that's going too far Mm -hmm. i mean i think i think part of the issue the reason that disability operates as this kind of symbolic content especially in uh, more modern day storytelling right if you look at kind of uh more recent movies, for example, I can think of two movies out in the last five years or so that have dealt with um, quadriplegia in particular. Um, the the film Me Before You, based on the Jojo Moyes book, and then the film The Bright Side, the one with Brian Cranston, where he plays a quadriplegic as well. And those are the only two examples that I can think of. Um, and for most people in the mainstream world, those are the only two examples they can think of as well. And the, re- the, the result of that is that those two films hold do a lot of heavy lifting when it comes to telling stories about quadriplegia in the world, right? It's like everything that you need to know about quadriplegia is contained in these two films. And that's not the case. What we need to be doing with our storytelling is to you know, increase the amount of disability representation so that instead of just glomming on onto one film or one story and saying that, you know, this, this is a story of disability and it's a story of a lived disability life. So it's, it's not a symbol in that way, but it also is a symbol because it, it 
tells people who don't know anything about this particular disability everything they need to know about it. We need to expand our awareness. We need to tell all kinds of different stories about disability. Um, I think we do need on some level to get away from that idea of disability as symbolic. I don't want to see any more films where people who have facial differences are made to be villains because, you know, the, the, the disability in that case becomes a marker, which is essentially like we've been talking about just lazy storytelling, right? Instead of delving into someone's background and motives and things like that, you just have it all tied up in this flash across the cheek or whatever. And people can visually understand right at the, that moment that that's what this is telling us. We need so much more than that. Like you, and the way that we tell stories about disability is also symbolic in that sense too, right? Where someone is overcoming quote unquote, the challenges of their disability and there's a happy ending because they, you know, are accepted into society or they learn to do certain things. We need to tell different stories all the way through. Um, and we need to allow room for all kinds of different depictions, right? I have cerebral palsy. My cerebral palsy manifests differently from the cerebral palsy of everybody else that I know who has cerebral palsy, right? So a story that's about me or that has me as a main character is going to look different from the story of someone who has cerebral palsy and uses a wheelchair full time. And there's a real sort of um, scarcity mentality in uh, mainstream storytelling, I think, where the idea is that, you know, stories about disability, oh, we only need to do one or, you know, we have a character who's in a wheelchair in this show, then that's okay. We've checked off our disability box and we don't need to do any more wheelchair stories, right? We have one, that's enough. And I, I think to go back to your original question, how we get away from that idea of disability as symbol is to just flood <laughs> flood our storytelling space with so many different kinds of stories um, and just hope that in that story, in that wealth of stories, um, people can understand, like they can see themselves in those stories and they can also see other people in those stories too, right? And understand what it might be like for someone who perhaps moves through the world in a different way. What a beautiful place to wrap up. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, where can people find you if uh, they really liked what you had to say and they want to hear more? Uh, well, I live online, basically. Um, so you can. Me too. <laughs> Isn't it great? <laughs> My website is amandaleduc.com, and I'm also on Twitter at amandaleduke and on Instagram at amanda.leduc. Um, yeah, and I, I love uh, engaging with people online about these kinds of issues. So please feel free to drop me a line, whichever way you like. Well, thank you for joining us. And thank you, our audience, for joining us too. As I said, this episode is part of our disability focus. There is much more on navaramedia.com, articles, audio, video. It is a treat for all of your little content mouths where they exist in your mind and in your body. Um, that's a gross way to put it, but I ran out of uh, words. Uh, this has been Downstream. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com slash support.